0: you know we invest in in entrepreneurs who we think have the ability to run their own companies and grow their companies and we buy into the vision that they're selling us so i would never you know want to step in in their shoes or or think that i can run their company better than they can that's it's their vision
1: Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today is Matt Harbaugh, the co-founder and managing director of Mountain State Capital. Matt has taken a long and winding road into the venture capital profession, starting in investment banking, moving into being the chief investment officer for the largest local seed stage investor, being the CEO of a company that was successfully acquired by Facebook, And much more. In this conversation, I talk to Matt about that journey, the basics of the venture capital business model, and how all the puzzle pieces fit together. I think you're really going to enjoy it and learn a lot. Here is Matt Harbaugh. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast, man.
0: Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it.
1: So uh, I want to get started maybe just kind of defining your current role. You're the managing director at Mountain State Capital to give people a little bit of perspective, the the size, the focus, the kind of mission or goal associated with your venture capital firm.
0: Sure. So Mountain State Capital is a small seed stage venture capital firm. We... Uh, We launched it and started investing out of this fund in early 2019, so just about two years ago. It's a $20 million fund. We also have some what we call sidecar investments that bring the total amount of money up to about $25 million. We have a geographic focus on what we call Greater Appalachia, or if you're uh, south of the Mason-Dixon line, you call it Greater Appalachia which is a really important distinction, by the way. You have to make sure that wherever you are, you pronounce it the right way or else people get upset. And uh, because we're geographic, geographically focused, we don't have a specific tech sector. We really want to find the best startups within that region to provide the best returns for our investors.
1: And if you were maybe piecing that apart, so so very often uh, that the kind of, framework an investor might use, whether it's their investment of their own capital, or they have limited partners that are, you know, putting money into the fund is there's some sort of edge. So maybe, you know, a team of investors all have, you know, built specifically biotechnology companies and their MDs and genetic engineers. And so they're going to be disproportionately advantaged in identifying opportunities in that specific sector. If you have that kind of geographic focus, is is the kind of pitch there or the, the, the thesis that there's undiscovered, under-resourced talent specifically in this geography, and by being proximate, you have the ability to kind of recognize those opportunities?
0: Yeah, that's right. So if you think th- the geography that we've laid out, if you think of Uh, Central and Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio, South to call it Asheville, North Carolina, um, through all of West Virginia in there. I mean, you've got sort of the mountainous parts of a number of states. There's great universities in those areas. Uh, Here in Pittsburgh, we've got Carnegie Mellon, we've got University of Pittsburgh, um, West Virginia University, but you've got a lot more. I mean, Penn State's in that region um there's but there's not a lot of private sector venture capital investing in startups so there's a lot more entrepreneurs there's great technologies being created and when they get to that stage where they've maybe raised a little bit of money from a regional economic development group or maybe from some friends and families they tend to hit a wall, and um, they get to the point where they need to raise a million dollars or two million dollars, and there aren't very many um, institutional investors, sort of small funds, that are able to come in and lead those types of of next rounds. So we saw it as a as a gap and an opportunity for us. And my partner Mike Green and I, you know, we've been in this region for a long time. We've both been actively investing for the last 20 years and so we've developed pretty strong networks with um, all of the major sources of of startups and entrepreneurship within that that region and we just saw it as a, a great chance to invest in the best of what we saw there
1: gotcha and another thing that that you did in order to get this off the ground and I want to go back in the history uh relatively soon but you got the sbic license which we also discussed with private equity investor steven gergovitz as uh, a mechanism by which you can raise the capital for that fund from banks in addition to uh whether that be institutions or private individuals that would um usually be making up a fund like this is that accurate
0: Yeah, that's right. So we use the SBIC license a little differently than most other SBIC licensed funds do. In the general sense, the SBIC license has two major benefits to a fund manager. One, you can raise money from banks. Um, Otherwise, uh, banks are not permitted or, or traditionally have not been permitted to invest in private equity funds. I think that has changed recently when they they loosened up the Volcker Rule. But up until recently, banks were prohibited from investing in private equity funds, including venture capital funds, um, unless they had an SBIC license. So that was that's sort of benefit number one, but benefit number two of the license is the, really the larger benefit. And it's one that we're not taking advantage of. Everyone else does. And that is if you have the license and if you are considered a leveraged SBIC fund you can tap into some very low cost debt from the uh, US Small Business Administration. Um, We don't use that because we saw that the uh, opportunity and the need here in this region was for small equity investments. So it wouldn't make sense for us to borrow money and then turn around and put it out as high risk equity investments when we have to repay that to the SBA. Most of the other funds that are SBIC licensed funds in the, in the country, and there's about 300 of them, they're all leveraged funds. They're all using that SBA debt to turn around and re lend it out to companies. Or if they're going to do equity investments, they do much later stage investments into companies that have current cash flow and where the, the risk is a lot lower. Um, for us, we saw that there was a need for the highest risk equity financing. And so it wouldn't make sense for us to do that with a debt fund. So we really just took advantage of that first benefit of the SBIC license, which which was enabling us to go and pitch to banks and and have them come in like a limited partner, like all all of the other limited partners that we have.
1: Gotcha. So the, the other interesting thing is I've learned more about the venture capital industry is the kind of like shot clock that's built into the model, which is um, you talked about the, the fund being about two years old and upon, you know, signing those LPs and kind of closing the fund, you are effectively... Uh, on a pretty limited window to actually deploy that capital, partially because the whole premise is the rate of return and the more time spent not you know accruing value within the the firm is a, is a problem. but there's also just you know stipulations associated with the the terms of that uh, capital being invested. So can you talk a little bit? I know I believe it's either sixteen or seventeen companies that you guys have already deployed that capital into. Can you just talk a little bit about the pace and how you manage that or how that is integrated into the system that you guys have for deploying the capital?
0: Sure. Um, yeah. I tell people that when you think of a venture capital fund making investments, you, you really have to think in, in two phases. There's the, the seeding phase where they're going out and they're putting money into things, seeding all of their new investments. And they're really assembling their portfolio during that stage. And then there's the harvesting phase where hopefully they're getting the returns back from those initial investments and then sending those returns back up to their investors. Um, So when you raise a venture capital fund, typically it's a 10-year fund and you need to make all of those investments and harvest all of those investments within that 10-year period. So that that initial period where you're making the investments turns out to be about only maybe the first four years. So you're assembling your portfolio within the first four of those 10 years. And then from that point on, you're really just reinvesting in the companies that are growing and doing well, and then hopefully harvesting those investments as those companies are acquired or go go public. And so the goal is that you make a certain number of investments and you harvest all of those investments before the end of that 10-year period. So you're right. There's a shot clock. There's a... You're you're on the clock from the minute you take a dollar from your investor, both as the fund manager, from taking money from our investors, as well as when we invest money into companies. When those companies take money from us, they should know that we, just like every other venture capital firm that they might take money from, is on a time frame and expects that they will you know, be acquired or go public before the end of that fund's 10-year life, lifespan. So it's it's, um, it's an important thing to keep in mind. And it, and it means that the pressure's on when you take money, either as the fund manager or as the entrepreneur.
1: And, and just in terms of your process, though, as that investor, like there's a, you know, if you, you read the writings of a of Warren Buffett, he talks about, you know, Mr. Market, it comes to you every day and you have this choice to, to put money in or not put money in. And you, they're like, they're very slow, methodical paced type of investors usually. So they're saying, you know, you can just sit, 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 and wait for your opportunity, but that you kind of have that little pressure coming from behind you as an, invest, an investor in this specific fund model. So can you talk maybe just like, as, as you're making these investment decisions, how that impacts when you guys decide to make that move?
0: When we look at any one company, we're really looking at it and and trying to understand if the company has the potential to deliver the returns that we want in both the the scale of the return and the timing of the return that we need for the fund. scale of the return actually has to be pretty big because when you think of the venture capital asset class in general, it's considered a riskier class than say a debt fund might be, or public equities, obviously. And so in return for that higher level of risk, my investors expect us to deliver a higher level of return. I, I usually think in terms of a rule of thumb that that a venture capital fund should shoot to deliver about a 3x cash on cash return back to its investors. So that's for the total amount of money that they raise. So if you raise a $20 million fund like we have, you hope to return about $60 million within that 10 year timeframe. That's a lot of money. I mean, that means if we're making some little investments into companies today, those companies need to grow quickly and be acquired or go public for pretty high valuations at the end of the day, so that our piece of that company, and we're we're usually a, a minority investor in all these companies, we might have a very small piece of that company but that that small piece still delivers us back a a large return so that in an aggregate for our fund, we're able to deliver the returns that our investors expect.
1: Gotcha. In terms of what you see when founders come to you, pitching you, like from, we're not on a venture capital track, but as a founder, particularly in the early days, it feels very like, do we have product market fit or not? Do we have something that the market wants? Do we have something that people will buy? And the overall market size, I guess maybe a more experienced entrepreneur would be kind of more finely attuned to that and recognize that. And, and you know you see, um, like I've have been involved with the Randall Big Idea Competition. It's very clearly that they like coach the kids that are going through that to you know, recognize the, the market opportunity. But do you see that in, in founders where they're just maybe so oriented around whatever problem it is that they may be fixing that they don't necessarily have that appreciation because that's just not maybe like the first order of consideration? Or, or what do you see from your vantage point as the person being pitched?
0: We definitely see where, where they, they understand that they're solving a specific problem and, they, and they're very focused on their product or service that they're building. But they don't always have a good sense of the overall sector that that they're selling into and sort of what the end goal could be for their company, how big it could grow, how fast it could grow, why a future acquirer might want to buy them and sort of what the other dynamics in their in their sector are in terms of acquisition, in terms of investment activity. All of those things are important for us to, to know, because back to what I said before, when we're looking at each company, we're trying to gauge how, how quickly can this company get to an exit and how big will that exit be? And we have to build a lot of assumptions into there. And so knowing what those market dynamics are for that specific sector that the company's in helps us build the model and helps us understand what we're really shooting for and, and what to expect as this company grows but a lot of times first time entrepreneurs just you know they'll be focused on what they what's what's happening right in front of them and it's this larger context that i that i think they need some help with
1: and i imagine that's a, one of a multitude of roles that you play should, should the investment happen just even coaching them through that as whether you're sitting on their board or just by being an investor you have the ear of the the entrepreneur that you've joined do you usually have a board seat if you've you've placed the investment
0: if we have led the round, we, we definitely have a board seat. And even if we haven't led the round, sometimes uh, we'll participate in rounds where we may still be the largest of sort of a, a, a group of, of investors who are all coming in with fairly small investments. Um, and we take a board seat then. When we don't have board seats, we take board observer rights. So we'll still attend the meetings. We're still active participants in those meetings. We just may not have a vote in those cases. Gotcha.
1: So, so I was talking with some founders that are, that are in your portfolio and uh, this quote was, I mean, pretty telling. He's, it says he's one of the best investors in Pittsburgh from a founder perspective. And so I was curious what actions, what specifically about the the model that you're building with Mountain State makes you such a founder-friendly investor?
0: Um, Boy, I don't know. Uh, I guess it's, I mean, I'm not trying to run their company for them. So I I try to provide help where I can. A lot of times it's just advice that I can provide from the fact that I've, I've seen so many companies over the last 20 years and invested in so many companies over the last 20 years where you've seen some of the same you know, or similar mistakes that that the entrepreneur might be at risk of making, and you can help guide them. Also, just having a a broad network. So having a lot of people from different industry sectors who hopefully I can tap into and my partner can tap into to bring to the table to advise the companies when they hit, when that entrepreneur is, is faced with a question that they've never had to deal with before. Hopefully, either I can help them with that or I know the right people to put them in touch with so that they get the right answer quickly and they don't have to worry so much about about sort of the unknowns. But in general, I mean, you know, we invest in, in entrepreneurs who we think have the ability to run their own companies and grow their companies and we buy into the vision that they're selling us. So I would never, you know, want to step in, in their shoes or, or think that I can run their company better than they can. That's, it's their vision. It's something that, you know, we believe in them. We're backing them as individuals and, and all we can do is try to help them be more successful.
1: So uh, one of the other elements of what I wanted to explore with you, and we talked a little bit before the recording started was, you know, i will speak with, and naturally just by the listeners of the program, there's there's some young folks getting early in their career. They're aspirational. They kind of have certain jobs that are well-defined because of culture, or what have you. And they say, oh, that's what I want to go be. Venture capitalist is one of them, uh, whether that's because of, you know, the social network or just what gets tech crunch headlines or what have you. And, and you've kind of taken a, a pretty long circuitous route to having your own fund. So I was hoping maybe you could just spend some time laying out the kind of Core pillars of what got you into this role specifically, because you know, raising to twenty million dollars and and even just being in this position is not an easy feat, not something that most people end up accomplishing. So, so what were the kind of drivers of reaching this position?
0: You know, venture capital in general is not a very well defined career path. It's not like you can you know, study it in school and then jump out typically and be hired straight into a VC firm. It usually means that you've done other things before that, um, before you are hired into a firm. And that's assuming that you live in a city where there are venture capital firms to hire you. You know, in Pittsburgh, there this is a very still sort of nascent industry for Pittsburgh. We We've only been doing early stage venture capital in this town, and we uh, it's sort of like the larger we uh, for the past 20 ish years. And for most of that time, it's been just a, a small handful of, of firms. Plus, Innovation Works, you know, has been there for that full 20 plus years, and they've been doing a, a great job at the the seed and pre-seed stage. But there just aren't a lot of places for young finance professionals or up and coming VCs to to get that experience. And so you have to sort of figure out how to cobble together the skills that will be most useful if you if you someday end up on that side of the table. And when I was coming out, I, I grew up here in Pittsburgh. I went away for undergrad, then I got a law degree and an MBA and I came back to Pittsburgh in the late '90s, um, knowing that I wanted to be in finance, but you know, at that time I didn't know anything about venture capital. I thought you know, investment banking was the place to go, and so I worked for PNC Capital Markets, which is the investment banking group inside PNC Bank, and it was 1998 when I started there. And right around that same time, all of the excitement started to happen with tech startups and this thing called venture capital that I suddenly started to hear about. And I thought, well, wow, Pittsburgh's gonna be really well positioned for this because of Carnegie Mellon and UPMC and Pitt and all of the exciting new technologies that are being created there. Um, So I started to think about how how to put the right skills together to position myself so that someday in the future, I'd be able to raise my own fund and, and be a VC. In 2000, I think it was, I, I left PNC and joined a friend to help him raise some money from, from a VC firm. And then about a year after that, I joined Innovation Works to help their portfolio uh, attract capital from VCs. And really, the, for the next five years after that, spent most of my time running around the country trying to meet other investors on behalf of all of these uh, portfolio companies that InnovationWorks had in Pittsburgh and trying to convince VCs from around the U.S. to take a bet on Pittsburgh-based companies. And at that time, you know Pittsburgh was still really thought of as this aging rust belt city. And it, didn't, it wasn't known as a technology startup town, at least in the minds of investors around the U.S. People had heard of Carnegie Mellon. They, they knew that that was a great technology school, but they didn't connect that with Pittsburgh. You, had, you sort of had to remind them that, you know, that university is located in Pittsburgh, and therefore we are a place with some, some companies that you should take a look at. But slowly over time, because of really of the strength of the startups that we had here and that we were able to show to people, um, more and more outside investors started investing here in Pittsburgh, taking a bet on local startups. And um, I ended up being at Innovation Works for about nine and a half years. The last four and a half of those years, I was the chief investment officer there. But by the time that I left, the companies in our portfolio had raised well over a billion dollars. The vast majority of that was from investors outside of Pittsburgh. Even today, the vast majority of investment that goes into Pittsburgh-based companies comes from investors in New York and Boston and Silicon Valley and other parts of the US, um, we still don't have a very large venture capital sector here. And so back to your question about how do you get into venture capital? Well, in, in a town like Pittsburgh, it's still difficult. You know, 20 years after I started down this path and tried to assemble the skills that I needed, you know I think the same challenge still exists for someone that wants to get into VC in Pittsburgh. I think if you're in Silicon Valley there's a lot of other opportunities to jump into an established firm. Here in Pittsburgh it, there there are very few and you know even the the VC firms that exist typically have very small staffs because even if you if you raise a 20 million dollar fund, your operating budget for that company for your your firm that you've started there is typically 2% of whatever you've raised. So that means you have a total operating budget of $400,000 to run your company, to run your business per year. That doesn't give you a lot of room to hire a big staff and pay all the lawyers and accountants that are required for, for the fund. So you know, unfortunately, that means there aren't a lot of spots for young want-to-be VCs in a town like this which is not i don't want to be discouraging. I think that you know the best thing that someone can do if they want to be in in Pittsburgh and they want to do venture capital is look at all of the skills that you need and and figure out how to check the boxes for a lot of these things. Being an entrepreneur is a fantastic skill. Getting that experience starting a business, raising money, having to do business development with other companies, really understanding an industry sector so that you know what the trends are within that sector. Those are all fantastic skills to have. Actually, I think being in investment banking, you know, is a good place to to get some of these fundamental skills. But at the end of the day, you know, nothing beats having the chance to really evaluate a whole lot of different startups and figuring out how to study what other people are doing when they start their businesses and you know good bad and the ugly what what's happening in all of these companies because if you become a venture capitalist a lot of your time is going to be spent advising entrepreneurs and you have to you have to have some basis for the advice that you're giving
1: yeah so I I think that that you know that for a long while that was the rule at a place like Andreessen Horowitz you had to have some sort of entrepreneurial background in order to join. And they realized that that, you know, for a firm that was becoming very large, started to put up barriers of inclusivity to the the kind of well-rounded diverse team that they were trying to build. But it does make sense that I think both at the margins as someone raising capital and as an entrepreneur deciding who you might want on your cap table, both of those would be huge kind of uh, feathers in the cap, so to speak. Can you talk a little bit about your time as the, the co-founder of a startup and, and what you took away from that experience?
0: So I, I've done a couple of stints working at actual startups. So the first one was when I left uh, PNC and jumped into a startup back in 2000. There, it was an e-commerce startup just getting off the, out of the gates. And I brought my skill set from investment banking with me, which was how to raise money. You know, that was, and really throughout my entire career, that's sort of been the thread that always connects things is understanding how to pitch something to an investor, understanding sort of all of these different factors that you need to have answered and questions you should have answered before you go and walk through the door of an investor, and what the motivations of the investors are so that you know that you're you're well aligned with with their end goals as well. Um, when I went into that first startup, uh, that's, that's where I focused my attention and we did raise, uh, VC money coming out of the gates there. At that point, I wanted to get more experience on the investor side. So about a year into that, I jumped back over onto the investor side and, and got the first job that I had at, at innovation works. 10 years later, I felt like I still, I had, I had then worked at innovation works for almost a decade and, you know, I felt like, OK, now I've really I under, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of different companies, a lot of different industry sectors, worked with a lot of investors, but I still didn't have the, the operational experience of being a CEO of a tech company that you know, was growing. And at that time, this was 2008. No, sorry, 2010. You know, apps were, were becoming much more important in the software landscape. It just seemed like things were changing and it, and it made sense to try to get some hands-on experience in some specific technology sectors and really understand how that world was changing. And I, I got lucky. There was a, an attorney that called me out of the blue and said that he had a professor from CMU that he worked with that needed needed someone to step in as a CEO. So I wasn't a, a founder of that that company, I I stepped into a company that had been around for nine years already, but was a, a very small team, and just helped the founder, helped the CEO, and the team that was there um, on the business side. I was more of sort of a hired gun on the on the business side of that company uh, for about two and a half years, and then it was acquired by Facebook in in 2013. Um, and because you know I wasn't interested in moving to California, and um, you know I've, Two young kids here in Pittsburgh. That it wasn't going to make sense. Um, I stepped out even before the the acquisition was complete, and really started looking for what I was going to do next. So I started at that point consulting and uh, working with uh, West Virginia University to help them stand up their entrepreneurial programs, and also in the sort of in the background working with you know my future partner in my venture fund to to put the. Put the building blocks together for creating Mountain State Capital. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at PiperCreative.co.
1: I'm just so inspired by you deciding in 99 that that's where you wanted to end up in BC. And, you know, 17 years later you know just methodically assembling the pieces and not that you weren't present in the moment like you know building that company or something like that but just knowing that end point like to me that's the story that that more people need to hear is that, that obviously you know no one's an overnight sensation no, nothing happens overnight but the vision the discipline the kind of strategic thinking to see that come to fruition you know so far down the line is I don't know. That's really cool. It's inspiring. Uh,
0: thanks. Um, you know, many points along that timeline, I was not sure that I was going to end up with a VC firm. Um, you know, I just kept doing what I was interested in, and you know, I was very interested in, still am very interested in all of these new technologies and really understanding how they're changing so many different sectors. Um, And wanted to be a part of that, wanted to really understand, you know, what new technologies have the ability to change healthcare, to change mobility, to change all of these other things. I mean, in some ways, you could look at it as a negative that I've never said, okay, I'm all about healthcare robotics, or I'm all about, you know, advanced materials, and I'm going to go 100% in that. I've been a generalist this whole time. But for me, it's just it's just fascinating. And it's just such a great job because whether I was at Innovation Works or now with Mountain State Capital, you spend your days sitting, going from meeting to meeting and meeting, and you might be talking about, you know, a new medical device one minute, and then you quickly have to shift your whole frame of thinking because your next meeting is with somebody who has a consumer product or a mobile app or something in a totally different industry sector. And so it keeps you on your toes. You, you have to sort of look for the threads that, that run through these things where you say, aha, I, I've seen this problem before in a different sector, and here's how it was solved. And I think that's what helps make you pretty well-rounded and, and valuable to those entrepreneurs, if you can sort of help them see things from a different angle.
1: Yeah. Well, you're speaking to a fellow generalist here. So I'm, I'm, I'm obviously biased, but I think that that is, you know, amongst the multitude of perspectives that one needs. So if you do have a biotechnology firm in your portfolio some of the investors are going to be those like specialists like you know very industry specific and they're going to open certain doors in certain directions but your capacity to say you know hey the media company that we're with over here or the you know technology company that we're with over here has run into a similar version of this hiring issue which is more kind of universal
0: and you bring up a good point you you also have investors who are specialists and when we invest in companies that's one of the things that we're looking for. That that specialist investor may not be there on the day that we write our first check, but we believe that for the company to be successful, we need to position them and they need to be strong enough to attract those specialist investors. So ultimately, we want to be at a board table where we're the generalist but there's someone much much smarter than we are within the specific industry sector who's there at the table and really that investor becomes the primary advisor to the entrepreneur once they get to that stage and we can sort of take a step back and maybe look for some new companies to work with because we know that that company's now in great hands with somebody who really understands how to position them for for success
1: so another thing that i've been thinking about and this is very i mean I guess anyone in any kind of generation could conceivably follow this, but that's something that seems very of like my millennial generation is the idea or the technology of like angel lists, rolling funds, where it's a very, you know, you talk about paying your lawyers and paying your accountants and whatnot, bringing those fees and bringing those bases down as much as possible. And you know, folks with some sort of sizable following or, or kind of group reputation can very quickly spin up a fund. And from what I've seen, these are more like you know one, three, five million dollar seed stage type of funds. But I think that if if someone was kind of charting a course now knowing that things have changed and it's just a different environment than, than where you found yourself in 99 that would be i'm not going to say like university like the thing i would say go do but in terms of the optionality of ways that you could build that track record like your track record was built from the capital that you deployed as the cio at innovation works you're like look i've got reps like i've got actual you know results that i have created raising the fund in the early stages might be harder. That's why it's, it's usually a lower number, but I think that that's another avenue that if someone was considering it, they should, they should be looking
0: at tools like that. Would you agree? I think it's a great point. Yeah. I mean, and probably because it wasn't around when I was getting started that I don't even think about it as an option, but yeah, I think it's great. What, what you tend to see with those are that, you know, they're very small as you, as you mentioned, which means you, can't afford to live on that. If that's if, if you're raising one of those, you really need another job or you need the ability to not have to make an income, um, but it gives you a good chance to create a track record. And when you go out to raise a, a fund, and even with you know what we would consider a small fund like ours, $20 million is a very small fund in, in sort of the VC world. You still are at a level with that size fund where people expect you to have a track record. Um, I think there's a, there's probably a threshold and maybe it's that 5 million type range where if you've got the right connections and if you've got sort of some kind of background that's going to convince people to take a flyer on you, you can. Um, But above that point, you probably need to have some actual investment track record. And, and so, you know, you, you do see a lot of people And I know some people now who have, who have some angel list syndicates. It's a great way to, to create that track record. But a lot of times their goal is they want to get to the point where then they can raise a larger fund and do it full time where they can then pay for their own, take a salary, pay for their own lifestyle by being a VC. And to do that, you need to raise a larger fund.
1: Yeah. Well, that's just about all the questions. I have one last one. I think I think I know what your answer is going to be, but th- there there might be a little bit of competition heating up regionally. Lindsay Campbell just announced the the, the fund, and 412 uh two ventures is spinning up. So it looks like there's going to be some more um, of this type of capital entering the region, which. You know, once again, from a founder's perspective, that's great competition. That you know, hopefully, means you know better terms, potentially you know more favorable, whether that's you know uh, valuations or what have you. Um, from your perspective, how do you see news like that breaking? Are you like, man, people are figuring it out and, and and are kind of like coming for what we're going after, or I would imagine that it's more of a rising tide lifts all boats because if there's more capital, there's that means there's going to be more companies that win, which you know would seem to become a self-reinforcing narrative to some degree.
0: Yeah. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, Pittsburgh is still undercapitalized. It's great to see more small regional funds get started like ours. We all work together. Everyone that you just mentioned are people that I've known for years and years. And we all talk and we, we want to co-invest together. Um, You know, it, it would be fun to be around a, a, a board table with Lindsay. I hope I hope we get to the chance to, uh, to co-invest. Um, you know, what we need though, are, are we need to get to the point where there are some larger funds here. Um, you know, right now, yes, you can raise that first $500 million, maybe a couple million dollars in Pittsburgh by going to small funds like us and, and like the ones you've mentioned, plus some angels and family offices. But uh, you get to the point where you need to raise a Series A, and you're you're going to be looking at investors from other parts of the country, and so, which is it's not a terrible thing. It just means that you have to be very good. You know, the companies in order to raise money from an out of town investor, the bar is higher, because you have to assume that those investors have entrepreneurs and companies in their own backyard. That they probably have known for a long time and it's just it's going to be easier for them to get over the hurdles to write the check to those companies than it will be to write to your company in pittsburgh um, they have to you have to convince them more you and the way to do that is through traction and showing them what you've accomplished and how far along you are and how fast you're growing and everything else it would be fantastic if someday pittsburgh has more of those series a type investors here locally because I think we have great entrepreneurs, we have great startups, they're doing all the right things. And it's just sort of that next ingredient that, that really needs to be added to the mix to make it all you know, take off here locally. So I welcome all of these small funds. I think it's great, but we also need some bigger funds as well.
1: Yeah. Well, hopefully this, this portfolio you're working on creates some winners that not only can uh, nurture that, but build your track record because inevitably that will lead to a fund two, a fund three, a fund four for you guys that hopefully gets a little large and and starts to be able to be one of the entities writing those checks. Um, Matt, we're we're nearly out of time. I, I want to give you the mic real quick. If there's anything that you were hoping to say, uh, I didn't give you a chance to before we ask our standard last two questions.
0: I think you you hit all of the the highlights here. Yeah, I think it's it's Pittsburgh and the Greater Appalachian region. I mean, really. We've talked a lot about Pittsburgh, but the same dynamics exist in West Virginia, exist throughout this region that we're targeting. Um, Great technologies, great universities, lots of good entrepreneurs, and the whole region is continuing to evolve towards that point where I think, you know, these are the types of businesses that are going to be driving the local economy. So it's it's an exciting time to be here.
1: Right on. Uh, if folks want to learn more about you, Mountain State, uh, where can we direct people digitally to learn more?
0: Uh, MountainStateCapital.com is our website. Um, you can reach me on LinkedIn. Um, and, you know, we're, especially if you're here in the region, you know, we're, we're out and about, or at least in a in a post-COVID world, we expect to be out and about, Um at all of the networking events and things like that. So hopefully we won't be too hard to meet.
1: Right on, Hope, uh, looking forward to hopefully seeing you in person here. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've got fingers crossed before the end of the year. I think that, that'll that get better hopefully, but um, uh, we're gonna link all that. Show notes uh, are in the podcast app where you might be listening to this or at goingdeepwitharren.com slash podcast for every single episode of this show. But before we let you go, Matt, I wanna give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience.
0: Well, I mean, since we talked about how do young younger people get into this industry, I would say, you know, do all of those things that we talked about. I mean, I challenge you to, to think about maybe even not just for venture capital, but in general, what are the skills you need? Don't assume that you have to just work for one company for all that time. You know, be an entrepreneur at some point in your career, start something or work with somebody who has started something and I think if you, if you find a sector or a challenge out there that really, uh, you know, hits your buttons, build your career around it and, and figure out a creative way to get to wherever you want, even if it takes 20 years to get there, which is sort of, I guess, my story.
1: Right on. Well, I think it's a great challenge. It's a great model. It's, it's something that a lot of people will value from. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today and sharing so much.
0: Thanks a lot. It's been fun.
1: We just went deep with Matt Harbaugh, Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Going Deep with Matt Harbaugh. If you enjoyed this conversation, I would encourage you to check out two other relatively recent conversations that we had about investing locally. The first is with Steven Gergovitz, who also has that SBIC license and uses it at his private equity firm, Tecum Capital. And also with Glenn Meekum, who has not only had two phenomenally successful companies, but also did his own venture investing and talks a little bit about that experience. I've learned a lot from those conversations. It will give you a very well-rounded picture of the investing landscape, and we will have more interviews coming soon to continue to give you even greater perspective. Stay tuned.
0: Thanks for listening. Connect
1: with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.